You're listening to Global Questions by YDS, an apolitical podcast that, as the name suggests, asks the big global questions. I'm your host, Jen Markochi. This is the first episode for our series on refugees and asylum seekers. But I think we've had very poor political leadership. I don't believe we'll have much change until we have leaders that can be more visionary, more principled, and be willing to take a stand on these questions. Today I'm joined with Julian Triggs. We will be exploring the refugee question in and just outside of Australia, as well as her experience working with the Australian government on immigration policy. Julian Triggs has a long history of committed service to human rights and the refugee cause in Australia, the broader Asia-Pacific region and globally. Thank you for being here. It's a real pleasure. Just to start us off, tell us a bit about your education background and what it was like to be a student here at the university yeah. in the 60s. Well, I, um, I was born and brought up in London and I went to a, a Catholic convent until I did what one did in England in those days in the, in the 50s. I did the 11 plus exam, which meant that I was liberated from the convent and went to a grammar school. Uh, but within a few months of that, and I, for me, this was liberation. I just loved it. I, uh, my parents decided to come to Australia. We migrated to Melbourne and I went to University High School, which, of course, is just across the road. And that the miracle for me really was that the assumption at, at University High School was that you go to university. So I, I, it was a sort of natural thing. I went straight from school then into the law faculty. It, it was a very exciting time to be at university in the early 60s. It was a time of great social change, a great sense of optimism, I think. Yeah. And although I didn't do human rights work until the relatively recent years of my professional career, I think the excitement of those years on campus was something that stayed with me, really, an interest in social justice, social welfare programs. And then, then I became very interested in international law and did that at, uh, you know, in the law faculty and then went off to America and did a, did a master's and so on. So so all my real you know, significant education was here uh, with the university. So what was your first job in the human rights sphere? Well, you could say that the first job I ever had was when I, I, I was in America. I'd done my master's degree in Texas and I did a summer internship with the Dallas Police Department. It was a very difficult time in, in the United States in the late 60s. Kennedy, of course, had been killed in in Dallas. And there was a very big move in America after the civil rights legislation of 1964 to ensure non-discriminatory access to employment in the public environment, including police departments. So during a summer internship with the chief of police, I did an opinion piece on non-discriminatory hiring practices for the police department. And the chief of police then offered me a job for the next two years. So for those next two years, I gave advice uh, to him at his request, obviously, uh, on the employment practices to ensure that more blacks, Chicano-Americans and more women were employed as the, in, in the Dallas Police Department. Um, uh, you might say that was a bizarre thing for such a young lawyer to be doing, especially when I wasn't an American and yeah. couldn't practice law there. The chief of police couldn't get the legal advice he wanted from the district attorney's office that refused to embark on any discussion about the 1964 civil rights law. And he liked my legal work and said, well, if you'll give me that advice about how this civil rights law works, then I'll give you a job. So I really had this remarkable position for, for the next two years. And that was really my first experience of dealing with deeply entrenched racial discrimination within the police department. That was very, very hard to dislodge. And I learned the lesson that merely passing the law of non-discrimination doesn't get you there. 
you need to change a culture. So I, I learned a lot in those two years. But I'd have to say after that, I really moved much more into um, the international commercial legal environment. And it wasn't until I joined, uh, was asked to take over as president of the Human Rights Commission that I started to do some really uh, in-depth um, human rights work. When you talk about refugees within Australia and how you treat them, this concept of exceptionalism comes up a lot. When do you think this rose up? Well, I think it's an important question because when you understand where we came from, we've actually taken a 180 degree turn in the wrong direction. Um, Australia has had a very, very strong engagement in the negotiation and ultimately signing and ratification of the major human rights treaties. And we've been, you know, punching well above our weight and been very influential as a middle power in helping to develop the international environment for human rights law. So when did this change? Well, to the extent that you can ever you know, draw a line in the in the historical sands. I, I really put it at 2001 when we had the Tampa crisis. Then within a couple of months of that, we had the Children Overboard saga, to put it politely, but basically lies by the government and, and doctoring photographs to make it look as though Muslim asylum seekers were throwing their children overboard. The Senate determined a year later that there was not a scintilla of evidence to support that. But within uh, weeks of that event, we then had the 9-11 um, terrorist attacks on the United States. And I think uh, we can now look back over the last 18 years and see the world really has changed in terms of its attitudes to migration with a conflation of rising Islamophobia with migration, with asylum seekers, refugees, and, and linking them, conflating them with terrorism. And I think from that period, we saw a retreat by Australia from the kinds of human rights protections that you see in pretty well every Western democratic country, a problem compounded by the fact that we're the only common law country and the only Western democracy that does not have a charter of rights. So it's meant that Australia's taken a turn very much against our history of the previous 50 years. So I know Victoria has a charter, but nationally we don't. That's correct. Can you shed some light onto why we don't have one? I think one reason is that the political conservatives have argued very, very strongly against a charter. Um, in 2009, uh, Father Frank Brennan had conducted a national inquiry uh, across the country, uh, and he reported that there was overwhelming support amongst Australians for a charter of rights at the, at the federal level. And the Labour Party um, accepted that report and uh, his recommendation that we have a federal charter. But the closer the Labour Party got to the election, uh, the more cherry it became and it ultimately backed away completely from the idea of a charter. So I think there's been a very, very powerful force at the federal level uh, against a charter at the political in, in po political terms. And one of the arguments that is a trite and inaccurate argument, but one that nonetheless carries a lot of weight with some people, is that a charter would give the judges greater power. And the argument is that only parliament should have the right to, to create laws and that judges should not be there to, in a sense, interpret what the freedom of religion means or what freedom of speech means. That would give the courts too much power. Now, that's been the, the, that's been the political argument against. Um, and I say it's a trite argument because, firstly, most of our fundamental common law freedoms came from the judges in the first place. Uh, so it just demonstrates people who argue that clearly have no understanding of how law developed in a common law country like mm -hmm. ours and, of course, uh, originally in Britain. But all that the court would have the power to do is to declare 
that a particular law breaches a fundamental right. And it then goes back to Parliament for the law to be amended accordingly. Now, if Parliament chose not to do that, Parliament could do so. But the courts would have a much more significant role in being able to declare that something's inconsistent with that. I just wanted to bring it to 2014 when you came out with your inquiry into children in immigration detention. How did this come about and how did this impact the political environment today, do you think? Well, it had a huge impact, as we know. Um, how it came about was, was quite interesting because when I took over at the commission in, in 2012, my predecessor, um, Catherine Branson, a former federal court judge, had conducted an inquiry of her own into the use of wrist x-rays to determine the age of children who were being accused of people smuggling. And she very successfully conducted that inquiry. It was inaccurate to use the wrist x-ray. It, was, it breaches the, the children's rights to be considered individually by reference to their background. And uh, she was successful in bringing that inquiry. But by the time I took over, literally a day or so after she'd finished her report and, and finished her position, I was rather reluctant to hold any more inquiries because the commission was a bit tired, we were exhausted. But then we had the Abbott government elected. And within about five months of the Abbott government in power, the number of children in extended detention had massively increased. So there were 1,100 children in detention. And on average, they were detained more than a year and three or four months, and many for, for some years. And it was clear that the Abbott government was going to do, wasn't going to do anything about it. So I couldn't do anything more behind the scenes. I'd tried. I'd given reports to the government. I'd speak, spoken to ministers. I'd done everything I could to get them to change their mind. So I decided that I had to use my inquiry powers, mm -hmm. my public inquiry powers, which will bring the whole thing into the public arena uh, in order to determine the mental and physical health of these children, the impact of, of prolonged indefinite detention. And um, so I did. But once the government became aware of the the potent nature of this inquiry, that we held five public inquiries around Australia. We got, you know, about 280 or so submissions. Uh, people, the press helped in the in sense of publicising what we were doing. They were running articles all the time. A lot of media attention given to the inquiry. It was quite clear that the condition of these children was desperate uh, and that it was grossly in breach. What were the conditions that the kids were facing? The condition of the children was simply dreadful. When I first went to Christmas Island, for example, there was no had been no schooling for these children for a year. People were committing suicide. There were 20 women on suicide watch when I was there. Um, children were playing in the dirt with, with um, feral chickens, mothers not able to make eye contact with their own children, fathers absolutely desperate. Families were breaking down and the children were in despair especially the unaccompanied teenagers who knew that if they weren't getting any education, they were going to slip further and further behind. So the conditions were dreadful and, and they were essentially prison-like conditions. How did you feel about the government's response to the findings? Because they attacked you they quite did. heavily. They did. They did. Well, they said it was essentially a political exercise, uh, which it most assuredly was not. And had the Labour government kept 1,100 children for more than a year and a half on average, I would have done the same thing. Mm. It, just, it happened to be that government. Uh, the reason they attacked me, I, su I suggest, was that the facts in the report, the evidence and the law in the report was so measured, so accurate. So they, the only thing they could go for was me. Did this always frustrate you? Because I feel like it would happen so often whenever you shed something with fact and then you're dismissed as... 
That's right. Yeah, just trying to propagate something. That's right. They they always equated anything I did with with the politics uh, on the grounds that I was biased against the government. But they never they never responded by reference to the facts or the evidence. And I, I'm afraid that's been part of a trend over over recent years to reject expert evidence, whether it's on climate change or on conditions of, of well, um, institutional um, child sexual abuse or the treatment of banks of their customers. Every time you have a factually evidence-based inquiry, then the reality is there, but the governments will often reject that evidence. Do you love global questions? Then you'd be happy to know that we run events all through the year. Find us on your socials. Search Young Diplomat Society to keep up to date with upcoming events. You don't think the government will do much with the remainder of the refugees on offshore detention centres? I think that they are so concreted into position, they painted themselves into such a corner that they feel they would lose a lot of face. Now, you might, if you go back to the days of John Howard and Nauru, Mark One. He just quietly moved them all back on some medical or other reason, by bit by bit. I think there was a rather poignant picture of a one man and a cat left on, on Nauru, and ultimately <laughs> he was brought back. I don't know what happened to the cat. But um, but he did it quietly. He knew that the public had pretty much had enough of Nauru, of Nauru and that was, that was the first time around. This time around, they're not doing that. And, and that, that's where I just don't know what's going to happen. And in my, the job that I'll be taking up in a couple of weeks, clearly we'll, we'll be arguing with them to find a safe alternative for the remainder. Um, and that may very well be New Zealand or it may be they go to Canada, maybe they go to other parts of Asia. I, I really don't know. But, but, but a pathway has to be found for those people. They cannot be left to, to rot on those islands any longer. What are your hopes for your new position? Like, what are your, what's your vision? I'm very much hoping that I can be effective in trying to find safe passage for the 72 million who are displaced or refugees. Somebody introduced me the other day and said, um, Gillian, you've managed to irritate one government. Now you're going to the UN and irritate 193 governments. <laughs> now, I sincerely hope I don't do that. Uh, what I'm hoping I can do, do is... Yeah, doesn't that mark that you've done a good job? Well, but that's what I, perhaps they, they are hoping in the, in, in the UN. I don't, I don't really know. But I think that my job will be essentially legal and diplomatic to try to work with government and government officials to try to find them. The word they use all the time is protection. Protect these people and to give them a safe passage back home, which is where almost all refugees, displaced people want, want to be, to their villages and their towns and their property and rebuild their lives. Human capacity for doing that is remarkable and they can do it. So I'm optimistic that some you know, good work can be done. But but as we speak, the numbers of people displaced simply keeps on rising. We've got civil war in the Yemen, continuing civil war in Mali. Um, the horrors of, of war uh, and displacement in Syria continues. And of course, in Libya now, and, uh, mounting again. The movement of people on the planet is extraordinary. So I think we have to find global solutions to this. And one of the objectives of my job is to try to encourage more countries to share the burden I know the burden's a nasty word because people seeking protection shouldn't be seen as a burden, but, yeah. but we need to share responsibilities at least uh, because at the moment the poorest countries in the world are shouldering by far the biggest burden and we need to find a way to do that. I mean, one of the difficulties is that, that the world at the moment is moving towards right-wing populist nationalist governments. 
there's been this sort of jingoistic retraction, quite contrary to the whole development of the world since the Second World War, when we've been looking at multilateralism, multilateral trade agreements we now have with the Trump position, a, a move away from multilateralism. Um, possibly Britain will go in the same direction. You know, they crash out, which is looking <laughs> increasingly likely. Um, the, the tragedy is that the world had moved towards a much more global approach to problem solving, but that the Trumpism that spread to other countries, Brazil, Hungary, parts of parts of the Turkey, other parts of the world, including Australia, um, increasingly concerned about national borders and migration and stopping migration. Um, and that spread across to... Uh, to, to refugees and asylum seekers. So um, I, I think the optimistic hope is that, that that move can be stopped or at least moderated so that we go back to a more global understanding that we can't solve problems of global climate change, of global poverty, inequality and, uh, and, and violence and persecution, which has led to that those fleeing and are looking for protection. We can't solve those problems unless we do it together. That's why it's so dangerous at the moment when we've got governments moving towards this more jingoistic protection of nationalism and, border, and talking about border security. Um, it's highly political. It's the politics of fear. It's often inaccurate. I mean, for example, if we go back to Australia, uh, we've had many, many more people arriving illegally by plane um, and then overstaying visas. That, but that's not had any traction politically. Yeah, because as well, I think we always talk about offshore processing mm -hmm. and there's never really been a focus on the onshore systems no. ever and no, I, because we don't much care about it yeah. we uh, employers want people for work the the um, fresh food industry wants people to pick uh, the food and the vegetables and the and, and the fruit um, nobody's really complained terribly much about it they don't really mind uh, which has got its own problems what would be the savior policy please? I think a leader with vision and compassion, with confidence, could say, this is a reality on the ground. It wasn't of our making. You can always blame another government. Not do. of our making, and they do. But they, you can blame the Labour government and just say it was all Kevin Rudd's fault, whatever you want to say. Um, but and up to a point, it's true. And say, we're now going to lead on this issue. We've got to deal with this. The expense is outrageous. The inhumanity is outrageous. We will now have a new process. We will process those that are in the country for a start, most of them will probably be refugees, but let's say 15 or 20% won't. Those that are refugees can move through a process, let's say five years, to become full Australian citizens. So you could deal with that group. The group that aren't refugees, then it's not inappropriate for them to be returned home. But the tragedy is that most of those will fall into the Tamil family category. In other words, they're not going to be refugees, but they've settled into their communities. I think the answer there is to say, we've passed the point of no return. They have to stay with us. Uh, and if they behave appropriately for the next five years, they too can apply for citizenship. I think we've just got to mop the problem up um, and get on with it. Um, we could, if I'm not sure I really think this is a great idea, but one way would be to say all those that we give that right to must live in rural areas and contribute to the rural development of rural communities. I mean, it's wrong to force people to live in particular environments, but it may be that that would be politically more palatable. Um, but I think we've simply got to recognise the reality that we can't send these people home and they're not going to be going home. Yeah. So let's get on with it. Let's deal with it, get it off the political agenda and, and, and get back to dealing with some of the issues Australia needs to deal with politically uh, rather than wasting so much money and political capital on something that is going to be a running sore for the next 10 or 20 years because we've got so many people whose positions are not yet clarified.
Final question. Do you have optimism for Australia's future policies with the refugees? I am ultimately optimistic because I think the basic ingredients of Australia are, um, are for compassion and equality. Um, I think most Australians will get there. But I think we've had very poor political leadership. And my I don't believe we'll have much change until we have leaders that can be more visionary, more principled, and be willing to take a stand on these questions. Uh, at the moment, we've had political leaders who are really just scrambling with each other for political power. They're not coming from a principled position of integrity. I know the Australian people know that. So I think I'm waiting like the Messiah for, uh, <laughs> for leaders. And I want to see younger Australians start to step up to the political mark. And uh, instead of we've got too many old white men in <laughs> politics, uh, there are more women coming in now, and I think that's got to be a good thing. Some optimism lies with the number of women coming into politics, uh, because I, I personally think women are much easier to work with to reach a compromise, um, and I think they will. I don't think women are going to act in quite the way that these um, men have acted. But I'm optimistic that we will get past this, but it's not going to be in the short term. Mm -hmm. I think we've got many, many years to go of this. But that doesn't mean that you have to give up. I mean, I felt after the last election, and I'm not political. I don't frankly care who's in political power. Mm -hmm. I'm much more concerned with outcomes. What are we achieving and what are we doing? What's our vision and what are our values? And I don't think either political party is really worthy of, of uh, the name Australia. But I'm, I do believe that we will eventually. My feeling is we've all got to get back to work. We've got to, through our education, through our young people, through promoting the values of a, of a compassionate and humane society and hopefully ultimately with a charter, but we won't get that for a number of years. But I do think that if we get a new generation coming through, we've got some optimism for the future and I think more women in senior positions will help. <laughs> Thank you for your words of wisdom. I'm sure all of our listeners enjoy it thoroughly. So thank you so much for your time. It's a great pleasure to talk to you. Thanks for listening to this in-depth episode. Make sure to check out YDS on social media, where you'll find articles and info about upcoming events. We'll see you next week.